Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, a show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. The only real estate brokerage that donates 50% of its net commissions to 501c3 nonprofit organizations dedicated to fighting climate change. Hey, Ryan. Nice to meet you, man. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. It means the world to me. Absolutely. Thanks for reaching out. Uh, happy to be here and looking forward to the discussion. Yeah, we should be able to cover some some cool stuff on here. And of course, we always love to get the show started with a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the moment. Sure. So um, I am the development director at um, the International Center for Appropriate and Sustainable Technology. And my background is I've been working in nonprofits since I graduated college in 2012. Um, but first I uh, took uh, an AmeriCorps position in uh, New Hampshire, which is, um, if folks don't know, AmeriCorps is sort of uh, the domestic Peace Corps. It's the closest thing where you go and work um, with nonprofits that need help and you sort of serve your community. I specifically worked with the uh, AmeriCorps VISTA program which is a program where you live at the poverty level while fighting poverty. So um, uh, yeah, we, you, you're mandated, you're paid to, uh, you're paid the poverty level of wherever you're serving and you have to figure out how to get by on that. Um, so um, yeah, it was tough. It was a tough year. Uh, I learned a lot. Um, I was serving- A whole year. Yeah, it's a whole year. It's a, it's a long commitment too. Um, so the cool thing about the program too is, you know, they, they help pay off. If you, if you complete it, they help pay off some of your loans. They give you a big stipend for, for that goes towards your loans. It's like a federal award. And um, you're basically counted as a, as a veteran for federal jobs as far as like your priority. Um, so there's some benefits to the program, but yeah, it was, it was a tough year. And, um, but I learned a ton. I got to work with a ton of cool people in New Hampshire. Um, and that sort of turned me on to uh, the nonprofit world. And then after that, I started in public interest work, traveled around the country, I worked in Boston and in California for a while, um, working for a group called Fund for the Public Interest, which works with um, public interest campaigns all over the country. So we worked with like Environment America, Environment California, um, you know, uh, like the PERGs, which are public interest research groups um, on public interest uh, sort of uh, projects. So a lot of it was, I ran Canvas offices, all over the place trying to educate the public on ballot initiatives like you know why we might want to uh ban plastic bags or why a plastic bag tax might be good or you know or a whole host of issues i worked on or like you know maybe we should have limits on fracking um in certain places and you know probably shouldn't like allow it you know residential areas like certain stuff like that so uh, we did a lot of education. Um, that job was really tough too. Um, so I eventually got burned out on that. Um, and then, you know, a friend of mine uh, that I had worked with in a couple different places on that job, um, you know, she lived in Colorado and, you know, uh, I, I kind of moved out here for her um, and uh, we're married now, which is great. Uh, nice. But um but yeah, and as soon as I came out here, I started looking for nonprofit jobs, and uh, I happened to fall in with with iCast. Um, it was sort of a, a lucky in. Um, my stepdad is uh, is uh, works for HUD, so the Housing and Urban Development Department, and 
Um, he had worked with Robbie, who's the president of ICAST, on a grant. Um, and I was just looking around trying to figure out where nonprofit jobs were. Robbie agreed to meet with me, not for a job or anything, um, just but to introduce me to the nonprofit landscape in Colorado. Um, and tried to point me in the right directions. Um, you know, he gave me a bunch of advice. Um, and then I got kind of lucky because uh, his grant writer left like two weeks after that. And that was sort of my skill set. Um, so was fundraising. So uh, he, he, he called me up. He had liked me and he asked if, you know, I wanted to interview. Um, so I got really lucky in that regard. Um, so, yeah. Um, and then I started ICAST. It was about seven years ago now. Um, and uh, I've helped grow ICAST from having about a $2 million budget to having about uh, a $30 million budget. Um, so in the last uh, seven years, um, and we've expanded from just serving Colorado and uh, we had just started serving New Mexico to serving Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, Missouri, and Washington, DC. So um, yeah, that's sort of my background. I've always sort of been interested in nonprofit work and uh, yeah, that's all I've done since college. That is quite the story, man. Um, were you like the kid on the playground who would like share his jelly beans with everyone? Like, how did you get to be like this? Didn't you, you know, you went through the whole American machine where you're watching the Ferraris on the television. You, you were never drawn to that, like glorified consumerist lifestyle. No. So my background is like, uh, you know, my childhood, it was, it was weird because I saw like, we went from like being very poor to being upper middle class to being very poor to being upper middle class a couple of times. Um, so I was very sort of like aware from a young age that like the world didn't work great. Um, and so like, you know, when I was, um, you know, when I was born, like we were, we were not very well off. We were living in um, Bridgeport, Connecticut, which I don't know if you know about Bridgeport, but it's not a great place. I'm, I, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk shit about Bridgeport, but it's, it's <laughs> uh, so uh, we, we were there and then we, we moved out to Oregon, which is where I consider my home. Um, my stepdad got a good job out there and we were solidly middle-class for a while um, until uh, you know, he lost his job because the company he was working for was doing some shady stuff at like the executive level and the company collapsed and he was out of work for a long time. And we, you know, we really struggled. Uh, we had a, we had a mortgage that we couldn't pay. We had all this stuff. I had, I had always saved as a kid. And I remember, you know, the first time that it was really hard, like hit me was, you know, I was 11 and I had like three or 400 bucks in a savings account because my, my mom always taught me to do that. And, uh, I gave it up so that my brothers, my younger brothers, so that we could have Christmas presents. And like after that, I was like, all right, um, stuff is bad and like I need to help. And, and since then, like I was helping my family since a really young age when my mom went back to school to be a nurse. My dad had to work in California for a while while we still lived in Oregon. It was just really hard. And I just kind of became an adult and just took over and, and, and started, you know, helping around the house and helping with uh, my family and all this stuff. And ever since then, I've kind of known that like, you know, people uh, are struggling. Um, so um, yeah, I was just, you know, I, I was just sort of motivated to, to try to do the right thing um, from a really young age because of hardship, I would say. So that is an, uh, it, awesome. Um, have you found that it's easy to figure out what the right thing is in your no. experience? I would just <laughs> to try to figure out what the right thing is and there's no easy answer 
so uh you know it's uh, the right thing is is a hard thing i i, I think all the, the most important thing is that we just keep trying even if it's hard and like and like being okay with failure you know and like just trying again if something doesn't work or if you find out it's not the right thing at least you can eliminate it you know like don't try to get the silver bullet that's not how things work you know that's not how we're going to fix problems it's mostly about um you know iteration really, exactly and but it's also about like sort of determination so like um if you look at people like social entrepreneurs and, and people who have really changed things um like made drastic changes as individuals it's if you look at their lives like it is like 95 percent failure but they just didn't stop for like 20 30 years you know um you know, how vaccines have spread across the world in some places and how like all this stuff, like that stuff wasn't like a easy task. Like somebody had to push for that for like 30 years to make it work. Um, you know, getting electricity in rural parts of like um, certain countries. There's a, a guy who, who worked on getting rural electricity in uh, South America and he worked on it for like 25 years and they, they said it couldn't be done and he figured out a way to do it. Um, and because he just never stopped. Um, and so like, that's sort of the thing that I think about is like, you know, um, it's okay to fail, but you just can't stop trying. Yeah. Well, I look at it as failure is impossible if you never give up. So that's kind of, you know, it's two sides of the same coin, but uh, cool, man. That's awesome. Let, let's dig into what you're up to now. So you international center for ICAST, what is it okay. called? What, and what's the focus? Why are you interested in working there? Sure. Right. Yeah. So ICAST is uh, it's the International Center for Appropriate and Sustainable Technology. We're a super long name. Uh, it's we just go by ICAST in most things. Most people Definitely. don't know that's the whole name. Um, and we used to do some internet, a lot more international work. We don't do so much anymore. Um, so we still do some things, um, little things. Um, but the sort of basis of the whole organization its mission is to provide triple bottom line impact. So what that means is you want to positively affect the social conditions of what you're working on, positively affect the economic conditions of what you're working on. You, you want to positively affect the environmental conditions of what you're working on. And that's a really broad mission and, and intentionally so. So like uh, ICAST previously worked on like bringing like uh, solar powered, uh, like lighting and electricity to like places like Tunisia, and like working on different energy projects for like a solar thermal plant in Pakistan. And we did all sorts, we worked on biofuel for farmers in the rural US. Um, we, we've done all these sorts of things, but they always are sort of, how can we improve all of these things at once? Um, and what, since for, I don't know, what's 12, 13 years now, we've really focused on one specific thing. So we've focused on the multifamily affordable housing market. So basically apartments um, and apartments where low-income people are living. Um, and what we do there is we're trying to bring uh, green technology to those places. Um, one, to reduce costs for the tenants, um, make their lives, uh, you know, a little less costly. And some of these places, you know, they have super high energy bills um, and, you know, reducing a low income family's energy bill by $500 a year can go a long way to helping folks. Um, it also improves health and safety and comfort for places. You know, we get a lot of help, um, thanks from seniors, especially who might live in sort of like properties that might be a little bit run down, often not because the owner like, um, wanted them to be run down, but they just didn't have the resources or they didn't understand how they could 
access some of the things that we do um, and we help the owners access those. Um, but seniors often think us because like they might have really drafty, cold, or like too hot in one place, too cold in one place, uh, places. And, you know, when we change that, their like house becomes comfortable again. Like they can go and sit at the, in the kitchen without like wearing a coat, you know? Um, and that's a big deal to us. Um, but one of the bigger things um, that we're trying to do is um, reduce carbon emissions and just help the environment. So this green technology um, really affects this specific sector. Um, one, because affordable housing is sort of like, they're often, um, and, and I'm, I'm not, I don't wanna, I'm a, I'm a big affordable housing advocate, so I don't wanna hurt any affordable housing folks' uh, feelings here, but they're often a little bit opposed to some of the green stuff because it's costly. And they're, and affordable housing runs at super, super thin margins. So like if you increase costs by 5%, that may ruin the ability for an affordable housing place to, you know, break even. Um, and, and so they're worried about that. And so they're like a little bit opposed to it in some cases because, and they often get exceptions in some of the regulatory landscape and, and stuff, um, for this work. But we found that, um, there are ways to improve their, their income through this work. So to improve their net operating income, to improve these sorts of things, um, with a lot of complicated financial mechanisms and, um, interesting ways to leverage multiple types of incentives at the federal level, at the state level, and even um, at like the private level. Um, so um, we're just working on these places and these buildings are often like the most efficient old buildings that like uh, most inefficient, sorry, old buildings that like haven't gotten any love. So working on them and reducing um, their energy usage, maybe providing renewable energy to the properties to reduce it further, um, really goes a long way to reduce carbon emissions. And if folks don't know, really the most effective way to reduce carbon emissions above and beyond renewable energy, including solar, wind, you know, all of, all of these things is just to reduce energy usage. So energy efficiency, pound for pound, dollar for dollar, reduces more than anything. Um, so that's sort of our primary focus. And then the other thing that we sort of leverage onto this is we're working on these sites. We're doing all this construction work. We're a general contractor. Um, you know, we're, we do the work. We, we're implementers. We're not just thinkers in the background. We really want to do the work. Um, and 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 how we're sort of helping the the economic conditions of the area is we hire local contractors. Uh, we train local contractors on all sorts of stuff. So local contractors often don't know how to do stuff like install heat pumps. Like an HVAC contractor might not know how to do that, or they might have done it wrong before and it may have hurt their reputation because they're not easy to do. What um, is a heat pump? So a heat pump is, um, it's, uh, it is a type of heating, cooling system, HVAC system that is uh, run on electricity. And so it doesn't require natural gas, doesn't require oil, and, it's, and it can be hyper-efficient. So when you're working in um, cold climate areas, they're called cold climate air source heat pumps. Um, and that's like the stuff we use in Colorado and, and some places in Missouri and, and in DC. Um, but um, there are different kinds and they're really common internationally, but they're not common here. And that's a problem because like, um, you know, the HVAC systems, like those systems are like one of the biggest drags on energy, right? Um, so, we really need to improve 
those systems to improve the building sectors, uh, to, to decrease the building sector's carbon footprint. And the building sector, if you don't know, is the second highest um, carbon emitter after vehicles. Um, yep. Or you know, just transportation in general. Yeah, transportation in general. Yeah, exactly. Um, so like, it's a big priority, like the building sector. And, and, and in some ways it's, it's harder to deal with the building sector than it is um, transportation sector because um, things change in the transportation sec- sector on a, on a shorter life cycle than they do in the building sector. We're still using buildings we built a hundred years ago, you know? Um, yeah, I just sold so, one. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm curious how you and your team came to the conclusion that working on green tech or, you know, energy efficiency and multifamily housing was the most effective way to have a positive impact. I'll tell you, uh, in my thinking or planning, whatever you want to call it for my business, I determined working on climate action was the most effective way to have a positive impact because we all live in the climate, including all organisms. So that's how I came to that. I'm curious how you guys came to specifically multifamily or low income multifamily housing, and then just, you know, get really specific on what like green tech is. I don't understand like heat pumps and like LED light bulbs, I'm sure we'll talk about and stuff like that. Just yeah, to make it clear. Sure. Absolutely. Um, and so that's one of the reasons I've stayed with iCast for so long is because I think dollar for dollar. And so my job is, is securing money in some way, but dollar for dollar, the money I secure um, goes much farther than I've any nonprofit I've worked at. Um, and so that's, what's important to me. Um, but really the multifamily sector, the reason is, is, you know, um, we're sort of social entrepreneurs. Um, Robbie, the president is very much a social entrepreneur and he saw the multifamily sectors, the challenge there as an opportunity because nobody was serving it well. And, and nobody still does serve it super well. There's only a couple organizations out there that sort of use our model to serve it really effectively. So you can look at uh, weatherization programs. So weatherization is like the program that sort of uses energy efficiency and weatherization um, sort of upgrades, which might be like, you know, they put uh, new windows in, they put insulation in, they, they improve the quality of housing, which is an energy efficiency measure. If you can create the building shell a lot uh, tougher to, keep cold air in, hot air in, you know, so on and so forth. Um, but those programs almost entirely serve single family housing, like even low income single family housing, because it's easier to serve them. Um, multifamily housing, there's a barrier in that, there's called the split incentive. Um, so the owner of these buildings may not pay the utility costs. So why are they gonna front the money to upgrade all this stuff if it's not gonna reduce their bills? Mm-hmm. It's, the tenants like they're the ones paying so you have to get through the owner to, to do the properties and like some owners there there are slum lords out there and some owners out of country sometimes as well you know they're just gonna they're gonna we're gonna struggle to make their day. but we found that a lot of owners if you can show the benefits for them and you can you can find a way to improve their net operating income through it they're much more open to it um, so Robbie saw this challenge of serving the, the multifamily market as an opportunity because nobody was doing it. It was a back, it was a space that was sort of like right for somebody taking control and figuring out how to solve a problem. Um, and, um, so that's what we've done. And you can look at like the national level, uh, utility energy efficiency programs. They struggle with, uh, multifamily, uh, they, 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 they refer to it as a hard to reach market nationally, 
Um, same with the weatherization. So one of the groups we're working in Missouri right now, they haven't upgraded a single apartment complex with weatherization money in like five years. Um, and we're teaching them how to do it again. We're, we're going in there and we're saying, hey, we want to access some of this money. You know, this is a really underserved section of your population. And they're like, yes, we want to do this. But we don't know how because it's harder um, because of the regulatory requirements, because it requires engineering. Um, so it's, it's just tough. And then, you know, the energy efficiency work we do to answer your second question, you know, it's, it's everything. Um, we do energy efficiency and renewable energy. So we're doing um, solar on properties too. And we're trying to incorporate storage at this point. We're trying to pilot that. When you say um, you guys also- do it, do you mean like you contract with other companies to do it? Or do you guys actually have your own like solar installers? So we typically contract, we're a general contract. So the way contractors work, I mean, you might know this. So general contractor is sort of the guy who does the planning, finds all the subcontractors to do the work on there, oversees the site, provides the quality control, works with the owner. And they're sort of like the, the, the top level. They work with the HVAC installers. They work with the, the lighting folks. They work with the insulation folks. They'll work with the solar installers. So we are a contractor. We have construction experts on our team, lots of them, but we don't typically do the work ourselves. Sometimes we do, sometimes we'll pull in and do it. If like, there's no other thing because we have the skill set. Like if we can't find a contractor, if we're on a tight schedule, we'll do stuff like toilets. We'll do stuff like, um, of like lighting and the, some of the easy stuff. Um, and we are a registered HVAC contractor here in Colorado too. So we could and, do that if we needed to too. And you guys do this for free as a nonprofit and you, instead of taking profit, you get funding to support your employees or what? No. So we don't do it for free. Um, the reason we don't do it for free is because we're not asking the low-income people to pay for anything. They, they're getting everything for free. But the owners, these folks might be multi-billion dollar corporations that own totally you know, 20,000 units across the West. Or, you know, um, there's no way we're giving them free stuff if they can afford to pay for it. Amen. Um, So we convince them to invest in their properties. And the way we do that is we leverage a lot of the incentives that are out there to say, hey, you already have to upgrade this property. You know, why not get a better product for the same amount of money if we can figure out how to do it? Or why not? Or maybe you can save money. So like there's a lot of specialized sort of incentives out there that we're experts on and we know how to leverage and we know how to stack together. So Weatherization is one of them. So like we can access that state funding, bring in money to their properties. They, they're required to pay into that um, a cost share um, when they do that. The energy efficiency programs that utilities run, we, fig- we figure out how to access that money or we, we run some of those programs in some of our states um, so that we, we, we really engineer the program to be the most beneficial to an owner the more they do. So instead of just like, all right, install light bulbs because you're getting free light bulbs, if you do a whole building retrofit, you'll actually get a lot more money than if you just did light bulbs. Um, Can you kind of dig into that as well? Like, what does that mean? Why, why would it be more efficient to kind of do everything at once than to just kind of go in and like pick and replace things one at a time? You know, they usually say start with the low hanging fruit, right? Yeah. So most energy efficiency programs that utilities run, especially in the, the multifamily world, they do light bulbs, they do shower heads, um, you know, shower heads reduce gas usage for like hot water. Um, you know, they do the stuff that they can give away for free that, that produce a lot of energy savings. I mean, you think that's like, you know, the most practical approach, right? There's, there's a pragmatism there of low cost upgrades for high cost saving or for high uh, impact savings. But the problem is you can only get out so many light bulbs until you run into uh, an issue of 
the market is saturated, or how do we generate more savings? So you end up going back to the same owners over and over and over and over again. So California has this problem right now. Every place in California has LED light bulbs. They've been giving them out for free for years now. They're ahead of the curve on a lot of this stuff, but they've kind of backed themselves into a corner in that they struggle to, to do some of the more holistic measures. And so for us, the way we have engineered it so that um, you can you get more bang for your buck by doing more is typically a lot of the way these programs are run are through what's called prescriptive measures. So you, put, you give somebody one light bulb, um, you know, you get $15 to give somebody one light bulb, you know, and that $15 per light bulb is part of the program. And it basically pays for the light bulb for free. So you can give it away and it covers your overhead just a little bit. I mean, you don't really make much money, but like you can give them away for free. Um, the problem is, um, you know, with that is, you know, you give us stuff away for free, but if you do that with something a lot more expensive, so you do that with an HVAC system, you say prescriptive, they're not going to give an HVAC system away for free. You can't do it. So they might give you a $500 rebate, but that might be- Who is they? Uh, the utilities. Okay. Um, they're mandated. The, the utilities, they're like the electricity companies? Like right, Excel okay. in Colorado. They're, they're regulated. The, um, the public utility commissions in every state force them to reduce energy usage. And it's good for them a lot of the time. So the reason it's good for them, you, you think, why would a utility want to sell less, like produce, like sell less electricity? Why would they want to reduce their usage? Um, because what that allows them to do is reduce their high cost production places. So if, if there's a lot of usage going on in Colorado and it spikes at six o'clock um, when everybody gets home and turns on their AC or, you know, um, at something like that, they may have to procure more expensive energy from somewhere else. Um, and so if they can reduce the, the top level usage and, and sort of flatten some of those, uh, those, those peaks and troughs of when people use energy, which energy efficiency does, they can actually run a lot more streamlined and they can buy cheap energy or generate cheap energy and then sell it uh, at, at their normal rates and make more money than if they were selling a, a, a crappy, you know, really costly um, form of generation. So it does help them in some ways. Um, but yeah, so the way we really work to with these utility companies is we do a simple calculation. We say, all right, we're just, we, we do what's called pay for performance. We do, all right, this is real simple. You're going to give us 50 cents for every kilowatt hour we save. That's it, 50 cents. Now, when you look at a light bulb, 50 cents per kilowatt hour, that light bulb might actually end up generating 40 bucks like in savings. But the light bulb by itself, we can't get 40 bucks for because we'd be making hand over fist profit because it only costs 15 bucks, right? To install that um, and to get it in and to give it away for free. Um, so you lose that profit. When you do a whole building, you, you, you get to keep that because- the, Who is you? Who is you uh, gets to keep that? So the, the, the consumer of the, the energy? Consumer, yeah. So the owner gets to keep like that. They, that goes into the rebate. So you get a lot more money and it, like, so that will subsidize like a heat pump and that'll subsidize some of the high cost oh. measures like windows. So, but that forces people to bundle stuff together and, and invest more money into bigger projects, um, which is what we need to do. Because if, if our approach to, to, to retrofitting the building sector to make it more efficient is to, Go back to the owner, say, here's the light bulb. 
go back, say, all right, now we're not doing light bulbs anymore. Go back to the owner. Here's the shower head. All right, now we're not doing shower heads anymore. Go back to the owner. All right, here's the insulation. That is just, it's going to take forever. It's inefficient. Um, we're never going to, we're never going to actually fix things that way. It's always going to be, it's, it's sort of the, the, the mindset of like, all right, we just got to make our goals for the next quarter rather than thinking on the long term of, all right, we need to fix these buildings. We don't want to come back to these buildings for another 15 years. Like iCastle wants to put itself out of business in markets. Like we want to go into a market, fix all of the buildings and be like, all right, well, we don't have to be here anymore. That would be the um, dream. That would be exactly. Uh, and, and in some places we're sort of slowly doing that. Um, um, do you, are you finding that most of the owners of these buildings are actually like wealthy investors or conglomerates? Like for example, in the apartment I'm sitting in right now, there is an HOA and each unit is individually owned by a person, but we collectively pay, we pay our water to like the HOA or something like that. So are you finding that? And then I'm curious how like the funding is working. Like if it is owned by this one person are you going to this person and asking them to pay for all these retrogrades and then you're showing them like a net operating statement where if they do this they'll save this much money over this much amount of time let us come in and do this project for you like how is this all logistically working yeah absolutely so it takes a long time to convince them of course so our sales cycle our sales cycle to convince these folks quick project is three months takes to convince somebody long project to take a year and a half and we're just determined to do it so we'll keep going back if we think somebody we can convince somebody we may wait until they need to upgrade their property like until they're like all right well the furnaces are out like we need to upgrade it and then we're like we jump in and we say don't use the lowest cost thing don't just buy the cheapest thing do this and we'll get you a better product um and then then we sort of subtly come in and say oh well we're doing this already why don't we do this too and this too and um and then we sort of convince them that way um but the owners, it's very varied. So we do work with some really big conglomerates. And when we work with those folks, it's usually we're working with some sort of regional person who sort of makes the decisions on um, how things are upgraded and when makes the, they're, the, they're the mover and the shaker, but we don't work with the, the top level a lot of times. Sometimes we do. So we have convinced some top level folks to come and like, um, they become our champions and we work in weird markets for them sometimes like we'll do one-off projects in like Arizona or we did one in Mississippi because the owners liked our work and they said hey you know we all own some properties in Mississippi that we're struggling with can you come out and fix them um, so we've been doing that one off too but a lot of owners that we work with may be public housing authorities that like are really underfunded and really under-resourced and really struggle to get any money because of regulatory reasons like Public housing is technically owned by the federal government. So the federal government can't borrow from Wells Fargo to upgrade their property. They're the worst. Um, so, you know, um, they, they don't get served. Um, so we come in and help them figure it out. Um, oh. And there's a lot of weird ways to do that, to get around the regulations in, not necessarily get around it, but there are mechanisms to go through the regulations that most people don't know how to do because they're tough. Like it's a lot of bureaucratic work, um, but we know how to do all of that. Um, and then we work with a lot of small folks too, either small owners that own maybe a couple properties in a state or um, you, even like mom and pop places. Like if somebody has a, a property that, that funds their retirement, they have one building, you know, two buildings, and maybe it's like a couple, like it's like two duplexes, you know, with, where there's four apartments total and they're just struggling to figure out how to upgrade it because they can't invest money in it because they need the revenue that it's generating 
for their retirement and like they're just in a pickle right um so we work with those folks too um and um you know the folks that we don't work with are the folks that only want stuff for free that aren't willing to put some stuff in even even if we can show them you know like hey you'll get a return this will help you in some ways you know we'll figure out how you get cheap financing we'll, we'll figure out all the things we need to do but like you need to put something in um and and we don't and we don't work with folks that aren't going to pass on the benefits to the low-income tenants so sometimes there are ways like if you put solar on a property and that solar is just fueling like, or just fun, like providing electricity to common spaces and like reducing the landlord's electricity bill we're not going to do that we're just we're just like, no, that's, that's not what we do. You can go to a normal solar company. We're not going to help you figure out how to not pass on the, the benefits to the, to the folks living there. Um, do you guys so, track your, the reduction in greenhouse gases from the projects that you do? Yep. Um, so in fact, we track it at a, such a high level that we can monetize it into carbon credits. Um, oh, sweet. Um, so yeah, we have a really uh, talented and diverse engineering team of folks that like, are either don't want to like they, they want to make an impact they want to find a way um and so we we have a lot of engineers on our team and we have built a system and, to track our impact um in ways that like using some some sometimes it's using like how the utilities do it with what's called like technical technical resource manuals where like tons of engineers work on a manual for the whole state and they figure out all right this is what saves this this is what saves this this is what saves this and in some projects, we're doing some pilots right now that are tracking actual savings. So most of it is sort of like estimations that like regulators have agreed on, um, that like they're usually lower than what they would be their conservative and like regulators say, hey, if you do this kind of work, you know, if you have this kind of modeling, if you do this sort of engineering, you know, we can, we can safely assume you're going to reduce this much carbon emissions. But we're doing some work now where we're trying to do actual savings and we're doing we're putting a lot of smart technology like smart thermostats that connect to wi-fi and stuff to to to, to track actual savings and like controls on on heat pumps and hvacs so that we can like get real data on the energy usage usage and when it goes down and when it goes up um but those are pilots right now because you know it's really hard to do that at scale we, we're hoping eventually we can do it at scale you know, your passion for what you're doing comes through like so well when you talk about this stuff. Um, you've been doing it, you said you've been doing this for seven years. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious if you have like a favorite project that comes to mind when I ask you like a oh, favorite project or something that's really memorable, either what in the beginning or like more recently, whatever, just what comes to mind. Sure. Yeah. So I'm, I'm thinking right now, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we're doing right now that is kind of memorable. We've been you can see the impacts from what you do. You know, you go in there a year ago and come back after everything's been done and people are paying less money. It's warmer. It's better. Like what you talked about, someone having to wear a coat in their kitchen, like that sucks. Yeah, exactly. You know, like, and, 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 and I am not lucky enough that I get to see it because I don't work in the field much. So I don't see it much at all. And I'm, I have to like keep the theoretical stuff in my head, but our construction folks do see it. And like, that's, that's what motivates them. That's why they're with us and not, some other general contractor out there, you know, um, because they want to make a difference too. So we have a very eclectic group of people from all sorts of industries, like from finance and construction and engineering and the, the typical nonprofit folks that all are here to make an impact. Um, but yeah, I guess some of my favorite projects, there's one project we're doing right now. It's a pilot with uh, the housing and urban development department um, to 
Um, so we're going into these places and we're doing energy efficiency, right? We're doing some renewable energy potentially. And we were thinking, all right, we're already going in here. Can we improve, like, can we specifically try to improve health conditions of these places? Like, can we target it? Can we, can we figure out what communities have high incidence of like childhood asthma and like figure out how to fix their ventilation so that those kids, like their asthma is reduced, you know? And so HUD is piloting us right now to figuring out how we can use uh, money from the lead hazard control and healthy homes office um, to upgrade some of these like health measures and like looking for lead and looking for like radon and stuff like that and fix them while we're there because we're already looking at so many households throughout like the year. Like we did 25,000 units last year. Um, like if we could figure out how to leverage that on top, we could, we could do, and we can make all this, ho this housing a lot healthier too. And the energy efficiency already has shown to make the housing healthier. But like we want to like get in there and like work with hospitals and be like, where are your hotspots of like uh, emergency room visits or asthma related stuff? And like we're going to go to those communities and figure out how to fix their housing because housing is like one of the big social determinants of health. Um, of so we're trying to figure that out. And that's really interesting to me. And I've been trying to get that funded for like th three or four years now. My boss was like ready to give up on it. And then I finally we got a million dollar grant last uh, the beginning of this year to go. Hell yeah. Um, so, um, I'm glad I didn't give up on it. Um, and then one no, other cause we don't give up, man. That's what we never do. Right. You can't, you can't. So, and, and sometimes, and so like, there are things that we have given up on. So, and we may have gotten funding and we pilot it and we figured out and we like, we can't do this at scale. We could only do this if we keep getting tons of philanthropic money to do it. And, and we try to do everything that makes it scalable and sustainable. So we don't want, we don't want to rely on philanthropic money to fix things, we need to rely on market sources in some way or philanthropic money that is so regular that it's not gonna go away. Like weatherization is not gonna go away anytime soon. Like some stuff like that, like we can leverage and figure out, but like we're not grant money, we can't use to fix stuff. We use grant money to figure out how to solve the problem and then make it sustainable and like pilot interesting stuff. So another cool project right. that we did was, um, that I, I, I got funded and we're, we're expanding now. In fact, we're going to be doing it in Colorado here. Uh, we just recently won in partnership with the Energy Efficiency Business Coalition a grant through um, Denver to do, uh, the I think it's called the Good Green Jobs Challenge. So one of the things that we were doing is, you know, when we figured this out, we were working in New Mexico. We're doing all these projects. We were scaling up. We were doing a lot more and more. And what we found is we were being held back by our contractors because they didn't, there weren't enough contractors that could do the work. Like they were like, yeah, we're, we're really happy. We're like full up. We have full schedules. We're making good money. And they were like, we, we can't find people to hire. And so then we were like, all right, let's try to fix that problem for you. And we started, we built this workforce program. We call it Green Construction Careers, um, where we, we recruit from the local community that we're working in to work on our projects. And we pay them. We pay them to do on-the-job training. We provide them all this online training through our partner, Santa Fe Community College, who has like a renowned green building program called the Energy Smart Academy. Um, and then we try to place them in jobs, either jobs with our contractors or jobs with our multifamily customers and as, as maintenance folks. And maintenance folks, you know, that may not be a big career, but that might be life-changing for some people because a lot of those jobs come with housing. Um, so like we're figuring out how to target 
the, the most disadvantaged folks in the communities we're working now. We're like, all right, we're gonna, we, we've been really successful working with disconnected youth, folks 16 to 24 year olds that don't have high school degrees that may have run into trouble with the law and like get them back on track and get them into a good high paying corrupt construction job that is in the green construction industry, which is like blowing up. Like the, there's the opportunities for that. I'm not gonna reduce any time. And a, a lot of people I've spoken to have said that working with uh, this whatever disadvantaged communities is the mm-hmm. most effective way to fight climate change as well. Does that go through your head as well with, with what you're doing? I think one of the things that you have to think about when you're working with disadvantaged communities is it's one of the biggest challenges, but if you can figure out how to make it work at the hardest point. So like if working with multifamily affordable housing properties that are nonprofits that are serving like homeless in transition that are on a shoestring budget. If we can figure out how to fix up all their properties and uh, improve their net operating income and help the people living there, and we can do that at a scalable level, we can do it for every every building in the country. Like if we can figure out how to do it at the hardest building in the country, we can we can do it at any building in the country. And are so, you always, you're always going to be pitching to the owners though, if you want to do this, it'll always, so the keys are still in the hands of like the wealthiest people. They still get to make the decision at the end of the day. Right. Yeah. And so that's where the pragmatism comes in. Right. Like I, I am, uh, it has to be economically viable. Yeah. I, I am, uh, I, I am, uh, I'm very progressive on a lot of things. And so like, it, it hurts me sometimes to be like, all right, we, these people, we have to go through them. From a purely pragmatic standpoint, if I try to do something that goes around them or forces them or does anything like that, I can put all my time and energy and maybe achieve like a couple projects forcing somebody to do something, or I can figure out a way to get them to go get on board and to do the right thing and to like make it worth their while. So like in my mind, like it's, it's, can you figure out how to swim downstream and get to the same place? Or do we need to swim upstream? And sometimes you, there's some problems that like need to be fixed and you need, and, and people need to be swimming upstream to fix those problems. But like, if we can find ways around right now to deliver impact, um, I'm just not confident that the folks that are swimming upstream right now are gonna be able to fix the problems in time. So from a purely practical standpoint, I'm like, all right, I gotta find a way to leverage the market to, to make sure that this stuff gets done. We gotta figure out a way because if the market is against you on something, you're going to have a really tough time. If, the, if you can make it worth the market's time, like they can scale you and blow you up. Like, oh yeah. So like that's that's one of the big things is like we're trying to figure out how to do that, and it's 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 pure pragmatism at this point. You have, however, you get the job done, we have to get it done. Yeah, I, that's that's so cool. So like when I was a kid and I thought of nonprofit, now that I've like dove in deep to the world of everything climate related specifically focusing talking to nonprofits. i always thought of like the commercial where like julia roberts or whatever goes and gives like food to like a starving child i thought that's what nonprofits are but what i realized is just a it's really just a for impact 
business model that they, they're not focused on feeding. I mean, hopefully feeding the pockets of the owners, like it's really specifically there for a mission. And I think corporations can, can do the same thing and still take a profit. But at the end of the day, to really get that impact, I couldn't agree with you more. And it needs to be economically viable for, for the pure sense of pragmatism or large scale implementation, systematization. Yeah, that's what I wanted to talk to you about a little bit, like how you think the nonprofit sector compares to like businesses that have, have like a strong mission. Because it seems like they're really just two sides of the same coin in, in many uh, situations. I even considered transitioning my model into a nonprofit, but it doesn't work logistically with taxation. But that doesn't mean that I can't focus solely on impact. And people are so surprised that I give away all this money. It's like, hey, man, like I've got this one life. I want to maximize who I am and what I want to be. Whether it's a business, it's a nonprofit, it's whatever. I'm doing what I'm doing because I want to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and and I, I'll say this as somebody who's probably going to stay in the nonprofit world for my whole life. Um, for-profits just, they can make a bigger impact than nonprofits. It's just, it's just reality. Um, and, and I'm probably not going to go and, and do that because nonprofits have a very specific role, I think. And, um, and you're right. There are some nonprofits that are the ones, you know, giving out the food to the people that are you know really struggling. And, but for me, like those folks, well, that's a really important job and a really important need to the community. It's a, it's a band-aid. It's a band-aid. I was thinking the exact same thing. You're not, you're not, you're not necessarily fixing anything. And, and like, I've seen a lot of frustration in, in folks that, a lot of my friends that are in the nonprofit world that work for folks where they're like, Great this people. is never going to stop. I'm always going to have this job. Like, how do we fix this stuff? And so for me, like, we work in a very different nonprofit that's like a social enterprise. We find ways to, to get market money so that we can scale and that we can grow and we can do get just continually and exponentially do more impact so that eventually we can put ourselves out of business. Um, but you'll you know, never hear a for-profit business say that. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So like there's some things there, but for-profits really can, when they focus on impact, they really can generate a lot more, um, you know, they, they can generate a lot of, of uh, imp I mean, just impact. Uh, it's tough though, because, you know, for profits, um, you have to look at, you have to, you have to be mission driven and we have to be better about choosing who we're working with um, to make sure that they have, that they're doing right things. And I, and I, you know, there's no for-profits that I found that are doing everything perfectly, that, that, that there's not some harm produced by what they're doing. But, but again, from a practical standpoint, you have to find the ones that are like trying, you know, they're trying to get better. They're trying to source sustainably. They're trying to pay their workers well. They're trying to, you know, folks that are, that are doing that, that's worthy of, you know, um, my business to me. Um, and, and if for-profits did mobilize like if there was like a real reason for them to mobilize and like do a lot of this stuff we could get so much so much of it done so quickly um it would be amazing but it's sort of hard um so that's one of the reasons that like we have to figure out a way to make green equal like like more profit we have to make it economically advantageous that's what I love. That's what I love about carbon credits. And I mean, at the end of the day, man, like people say, oh, some people are really against capitalism, the oppression, you know, dis disenfranchised people abusing the labor of of others, which is totally valid. But we don't have like 
just like we never had perfect communism, we don't have perfect capitalism. We all know we live in a crony capitalist society where there's lobbyists being paid by people. And then I, I don't want to go deep into this, but the what the best example is unpriced externalities, carbon. If, if we agree on the science, carbon is a pollutant and we need to have a price on it. That's the biggest, most simple switch. And that's why I choose to donate my money to the Citizens Climate Education and why I love the proposal by Citizens Climate Lobby to put a price on carbon and create a fee and dividend. But even if there's no fee and dividend, just as long as we get a price, we need to start pricing in negative impacts. And until that happens, like it's on, it's on the consumer to decide that they only want to do business with companies that are doing the right thing, which is and tough, it's so man. hard yeah. to find, to figure that out because everybody talks a big game now, but it often it's lip service and, you know, like, and it's, it's very hard to be an educated consumer in, in, in how the complicated world and the complicated supply chain that exists in our, in our system. Um, so you're right. I, I think there are, there are ways it has to be done at a higher level that like there has to be a market incentive for to go this way. And, and or or there has to be massive government investment. And I think we're more likely to get things done through a market incentive just because of the there's low appetite for a massive government incentive. And even like stuff like the, um, the Green New Deal, which is a, it's a smart way of doing things because it's linking again, going green with, with economic advancement for people with jobs, right? Like that's smart. That's how you have to do it. Um, and, um, but, but that's, I think in our current system, it's, it's going to be so hard to, to get the government to get there in any time in the near future where we need to, like it, it can't take 15 years for us to get our shit together at, at, at the congressional level we don't have time for that um so like we have to do what we can in the meantime and and i think that like one of the biggest things that people can do is is you know become more politically educated and like ask people and and make it known to their representatives that they care about this stuff um because that's the only time they're going to start taking it seriously um is when it becomes a, a real thing and you've seen the growth of that like you know, you know, the first time I voted like global warming and turned into climate change was the thing. And like that was so low on the list of people's concerns compared to everything else. And now it's much higher, which is good. And um, we're moving in the right direction, but it's still too slow. Um, and so from a, again, from a practical standpoint, we have to figure out what levers we can pull them out, um, even if it's not perfect to like get get shit done. I, I love that, man. Um, any trends you see coming in like the four impact nonprofit or, you know, four impact business nonprofit, as we've kind of discussed, they're pretty closely linked. Uh, any trends you kind of see coming that are going to be really that you're bullish on or you think are going to make a big impact? So, yeah, I think like technology wise, um, there's a couple of trends that are going to help. Um, heat pumps are going to be a huge thing. Um, I hear that every, a lot. every state city with climate change goals are panicking because they don't have contractors that know how to install heat pumps. Um, and they may not have the manufacturers like that. The manufacturers may not be stocking here because heat pumps have been not in high demand in the US for, we're, we're just starting to generate demand. Um, so like, you know, Denver's like, all right, we have, to, we have to figure out how to get people trained on this and how to do it um, because that's the only way we're gonna get to our, our, our ambitious climate goals. Like, 
that has to be done. Like they're just like from a like a realism standpoint, there's not there's not easy other paths besides like retrofitting stuff with that sort of technology. So that's gonna happen. One of the things that I'm really hoping and looking forward to is when batteries become more viable economically. Right now batteries are too expensive. Um, but there's a lot of money being invested through the DOE and through a lot of interesting R&D groups that are working on this. Um, a lot, you'll, I think we'll see some companies break out when they crack this nut because it, it's going to be the same thing as solar. You know, 15 years ago, solar was too expensive too. Um, and now it can be done scalable, like at, at scale. Like it's, it's come not, down ludicrous in price. Yeah. It's, it's, it's reduced like crazy from when it first exactly. came out. So yeah, exactly. And we're hoping that batteries, the same thing, because we need batteries um, to, to go, to go, to, to, to fix the renewable energy problem, because the critics of renewable energy do have a point in that it, it, it struggles in some places, you know, there's, there's something called the duck curve in Arizona and California, where you see when solar is produced and there's a lot of cheap energy, and then you see when it goes off and maybe the demand spikes, like when the phone goes down, everybody gets home and they have to figure out, all right, where the fuck are we going to get this energy? Um, <laughs> and, um, and it, and it, and it really, it, it, it hurts the utilities and, and they end up having to like turn on coal fired power plants to like, make sure that they don't go black, you know, yeah. and, and all this stuff, like, so, and, and the, the simple fix for that would be, all right, can we store some of that, that extra, that excess energy that we did so that we can, even if we can only store a couple hours of it, that'll fix a lot of the problem when the demand goes, because the demand will drop at 10, 11 o'clock at night when people start going to sleep. Um, the other thing is we have to have a smarter grid. Like our grid is so outdated and so um, it's just, we can do so much better. Like as human beings, like we have fixed so much stuff that like our grid should not be uh, open to human error and like it should be smarter. Like <clears throat> there's there's a concept called the connected community that DOE is trying to, to work on and pilot right now where you have all these controls. So like the, the HVAC controls, talk to the smart thermostats, talk to uh, a controller at the, um, at the distribution level for the utility, which talk to a bigger controller at the, the top level. And they all talk and feed data in a way that you could reduce energy in some places. And, and people aren't going to like this because we're a free society and we don't like somebody turning down our heat like by two degrees because, because the grid needs it. But, but if we could get everything to talk in that way, the grid could be so flexible, so much better that we'd solve so many problems and we'd be able to solve a lot of energy usage problems if all of these buildings could talk together in a way that shifts and flows. And as EVs become a big thing, electric vehicles, some people see that as a bad thing for the grid that, you know, you're going to plug in, there's going to be all this extra usage, which is not, there's just, there's a, there's a, that's a real criticism. But the interesting thing that people don't think about is if you had a smart grid, you could actually pull power from EVs. You know, you could, the EV is 90% charged. You could pull 5% power for the EVs for two hours in the highest demand things, get it right back to charging after that. And, you know, that could be a massive just generation source um, that people don't think about, um, that it could be that, that they all have batteries. That's basically a massive battery network. Um, and if we could just think, figure out how to do things at that level, we could solve so many problems. And it's just like right now, it's left up to the cities and the states and, you know, and, and they're underfunded and they don't have the technical experts. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of smart people working on it, but like, 
to me in my mind it's like i feel like there's also money to be made there like somebody like you know like people should figure out how to leverage like 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 businesses to get into this model to be the people on the front end because we got to change everything we can't keep having stuff happen like in california with the blackouts and in texas with you know the 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 inefficiencies in their grid like that we're way too like far along to like have that shit happening that, that's literally just negligence ryan this has been awesome and i i just love how you like you've got like this ferocious energy and i love how you're just it's all going into community development helping people and, it, and that's this the, the backstory ties it all together it makes a lot of sense it's been a pleasure pleasure having you on the show man final piece of advice for anyone who's looking to create a positive impact in their community I mean, I think you have to start paying attention to what's going on. The, the easy, the, the, I think the, 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 the path of least resistance for people right now is, you know, one, you know, you can look at your own, reducing your own energy usage, recycling, doing all of that stuff, but that's such a small piece of the puzzle. I think more important than that is got to vote local. You got to get educated on what needs to be done. You got to be willing to, to like, pay a little bit more sometimes in taxes if the if the programs that they're going to fund are good and so like there's there's a sort of a an educated we need to become citizens again the country i think right now has has fallen into a place where like we've been lax for a really long time and and we vote in the presidential election and it's more like a football game like taking teams than like actually trying to solve anything and like we need to get the government functional again in a way that i think can help everybody and and the First place we got to start is at the local level. That's the place where people can actually affect stuff. So get involved in local politics. That's all I can say. Man, thank you so much for coming on the show. I, it was just an absolute joy. Um, I'd look, love to talk to you again sometime. And uh, yeah, hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Absolutely. Thanks, Ethan. And it was great to talk to you too. Right on. All right. See you, see you soon, guys. Peace yep. out. Every Monday and Thursday. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Changing the Climate. Here at Climate Change Realty, we don't just donate 50% of our net commissions to fight climate change. We also donate a full 50% of our real estate referrals. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrboulder.com today.